Well, good morning to you, uh, Church Central. It's a thrill and a joy to be with you, and I thank God for the opportunity. Well, I'm going to read you a few Bible verses from the book of Joshua chapter 5, so you might want to turn there, Joshua chapter 5. I'm going to read from verse 13. It says, And when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Well, really, like I said, it's a joy for me to be sharing with you. And uh, I've come to really like your pastor very much. And uh, although I knew him and of him, us all being in the same family of churches, uh, uh, New Frontiers, but uh, on a couple of occasions where I have met him in different uh, uh, areas, as it were, he just came over to me, said hello, and uh, I remember fondly because he was just very kind, very affirming, very encouraging towards me. And uh, so that when he then invited me, if I would come share uh, a little bit with you guys, I, I thought if God made the way, I would gladly do it. And so here I am. And uh, I know that you're a very well-taught church. And uh, so my prayer is that the Lord will use this to bless you all uh, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. The Lord... The Lord, a God who is merciful and gracious, who is slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness. He abounds in steadfast love. He has faithfulness. The Lord, the Lord. Uh, this is taken from an episode in the life of Moses recorded in the book of Exodus chapter 34 where Moses asked to see the face of God and God says, you know better than to ask to see my face, Moses. No one sees the face of God and lives. He says, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll put you in the clefts of the rock. I will walk by and you will see my hind quarters somewhat and that will be enough for you all the days of your life. And so it is that God then puts him in the cleft of the rock. God begins to move forward. And as all of this is happening, you can just imagine Moses seeing one solitary human being on the face of the earth where nobody else ever would have this kind of opportunity. He sees all of this. And in the midst of that comes a voice from heaven, the Lord, the Lord. A God who is merciful, who is gracious, who is slow to anger, who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness while we're at it. And faithfulness. It's God describing himself. This is how he wants to be known. This is how he wants to be known. He's describing himself to Moses, that Moses may know his character, may know his nature, may know how it is that he acts towards the sons of men, a God who is merciful. And I guess I'm bringing all that to you because at the end there, he calls him faithful. And for you and I to know that to walk with a faithful God requires us to be faith-filled ourselves. 
uh, and the whole Bible bears this out, the faithfulness of God. In fact, the whole Bible is really one long story, the grand meta-narrative of the Bible, the story of a God who brings deliverance to those who are captives. If I could summarize it that way, he brings salvation to those who are sinners and destined for hell. It's called the gospel. It's how God takes people from darkness and brings them to light. How he takes a motley crew and makes them an army. How he makes slaves into sons. And no better picture really, I guess, in the Old Testament than the way he dealt with the nation Israel, where he said, Israel is my firstborn. But now his firstborn is in captivity and you see the mighty God of heaven come down to bring them out, is what it says to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. I have come down that I might bring them out, that I might raise them up. And so he is that he says, Moses to go do that job as a deliverer. When God brought them out, he did it by demonstrating who he is, his power, that they may know the kind of God they serve. And he did it by, he delivered them by miracles. Water that he turned to blood. Locusts that ravaged the land of the Egyptians, that they may know that there's a God in heaven who officiates over the affairs of men. Darkness, that he, darkness in the camp of the Egyptians, whereas the camp of the Israelites, they had light, hailstones all over the place. Where you could read this and think, well, why is God doing this to these people? You just need to know that God the whole time, these are not just random acts of capriciousness from a wicked God who is angry. He is debunking each of the gods of the Egyptians. Stepwise, he's taking them down because they worshipped the Nile, so he turned it around. They worshipped locusts, they turned it around. That's what he was doing. He delivered them by miracles, not just that. He destined them by promises. He destined them by promises. He said to Moses, let the people know. He said this, Exodus chapter 6. He said to the people, I will bring you out from under the burdens that you're under. He said, I will deliver you from this slavery. I will redeem you with my outstretched arm. I will make you my people and I will be your God. I will give you the land that I promised and I'll make it an inheritance for you. For your children forever. Seven times in those seven verses, he says, I am, I am, I am. This is, he's showing them who he is. And while we're at it, it looks like he's virtually bequeathing them, marrying them, bringing them close, welding himself permanently to them. He delivered them by miracles. He destined them by promises. And then he sustained them by the supernatural. Because when they came out, I mean, they came out, and they came out right into the Red Sea. And he parted the Red Sea for them. So that they walked on dry land. We read the stories, and we almost relegate them to things to be told to our kids at night. But these things were written for our instruction. That he that thinks he stand may take heed lest he fall. That he that thinks he has faith. If we forget this thing, these things, if faith begins to diminish and wane. This is the God that we serve. He's the God of the supernatural. Whether you see it in your day or not, it doesn't change who he is. He separated the Red Sea. They walk on dry land. And then the second miracle, he closes the Red Sea at the exact right time. These people, he will feed them for 40 years in the wilderness. For 40 years, the longest miracle in the Bible. They will wake up in the morning and breakfast will be there. Unbelievable, one might say. He gave them water in the desert from a rock. They had the, sun, they had the, the pillar of fire by night so that they could see. So that they had a perpetual presence with them. 
They had a, 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 the cloud that led them so that they knew where to go. The Bible tells us their slippers never wore out. Think about that. Their, their shoes never wore out. I often look at that and think, I wonder when they discovered that their shoes didn't wear out. Because it's the kind of thing you discover. They're probably sitting around the campfire saying, yeah, these shoes, probably, you know, I, I bought them in Egypt, you know. They lasted, they lasted long. Those Egyptians were good at shoemaking. It's not the Egyptians. It's God. How many things in your life is God taking care of and you don't even notice? You don't even notice. But he holds all things together by the word of his power. Hebrews chapter 1. They come out of Egypt with jewelry. And when they came out, they came out singing to God, saying, who is like unto thee, O God, amongst the God? Who is like unto you? Glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, always doing wonders. They knew him as a wonder-making God. Amazing. As a wonder-making God. Their Christianity was not rigidified and calcified by pragmatics. They knew that they served a living God. And so sad to see we get to the New Testament. You see the record of it being rendered for us. It says this, and yet God was not pleased with them. After everything they saw, they still went back. After everything they saw of God's hand, it took one just series of difficulties and they moved back. They lost faith in him. In the end, it turns out God could take them out of Egypt, but he couldn't quite take Egypt out of them. They just loved Egypt too much. They had the tendency to regress in the face of challenges. So that by the time we get to what I read to you, the next generation, is a whole new generation in the book of Joshua. It's a whole new generation. But that generation would also face its own battles. Just like Moses had to face his own battle, they face their own battle. Moses sent some spies, Joshua sent some spies. Moses crossed the Red Sea, Joshua is going to have to cross the Jordan. But God, in calling Joshua, said, I will be with you. And God was with him from the very outset. I will be with you. I will, get, I will make you to make these people get the land that I promised. All the land of the Euphrates, on the Amra, all this land, you are going to help them get it which means leadership is directly connected to people advancing into their destiny. It's why people really ought to be in a home, in a church, where you have leaders and you are a community and it's one people. For there, where there is unity, the Lord commands his blessing and bit by bit he moves people into the destiny that he intended for them. This is a whole new generation. It's all beginning to go well. And then they'll get to chapter 5, and the Bible tells us, and then came Jericho. Jericho was a city, but a city that was fortified with a huge wall around it. Get out of your mind any little walls that we see. These were, you could have driven four-wheeler trucks on these walls. Standing there is Jericho, looking down, impregnable, undefeatable, and seemingly impossible to overcome. And I'm referencing that because, you see, Jericho represents, as it wasn't the physical, it represents so many other things in the spiritual. It represents situations that have a tendency to stop advance. I think of it as challenges and obstacles that will not shift 
and just deposit daily difficulty into a person's life until they feel like they have to just keep grinding out an existence. It is relationships that seem to defy restoration. No matter what you've done, it seems to be fractured seven different ways and it's, and, it's, and it's a problem at the low base of life where you feel just can't quite move on from that thing. Or who can ignore the seismic events of our day? Who would have imagined it? The pandemic right across the face of the earth. And uh, I, we all thought we were wiser people, brighter people, more gifted people. We thought we could handle any kind of invasion. We just didn't imagine it would be of this sort. And now nation after nation is being found out. It turns out we're not as bright as we think we are. It, and if this doesn't make us cry to, a, to God, then I don't know what will. Uh, if I could just make a diversion here for a few moments. This is the time for the church of Jesus Christ to awaken and to shine in the midst of darkness like never before. This is the time. This is the time. That whatever the enemy intends for all this to be, that we, God wants to turn it around for good, that we become a bright light, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. But Jericho's are real. Jericho in a person's life can be life-changing. And the situation we see all over our world are life-changing, life-threatening, life-taking. And it has a tendency to deposit in us a vulnerability and a frailty and a fragility that characterizes our humanity. Maybe it's just reminding us of our creatureliness. Maybe we all need to be just a little bit more humble and respectful toward God. The question you see on the ground is, how then does one overcome a Jericho? How does one handle the obstructions in the pathway of life that want to shatter peace and destroy your destiny? How, do, how does one do that? Because there are different ways people handle Jericho. Some people see a Jericho, a problem, whatever that problem may be in your life, and they just retreat, retreating the backslide. They're just not on fire for God anymore. They don't move with God the way they used to. They're falling off the edges. They may tune in and watch, but really they're, they're, they haven't guarded the furnace of the heart and the Fahrenheit of the soul is depleted somewhat. Some people retreat when they read the Jericho. Some try to climb the Jericho, but they're doing it all in their own strength, not in the strength of the Lord, not by the help of the Holy Spirit. It's perfectionism, and that has a whole different loads of, truckloads of problems that it brings into a person's life because never, nothing is ever good enough in the hands of a perfectionist. But the, the third one are the, so many, many people, many Christians, who they don't want to go back because they've known God too much and they don't want to go to Egypt. And they can't go forward, so they can't base a Jericho and label it Canaan, except Jericho is not Canaan. They learn to just take it as it is. What's going to be is going to be. But God would say, but this is not what I intended. He did not bring them out that he might dump them in the desert. He brought them out that he might bring them in. Therefore, how does one handle 
or Jericho? How does one regain that which seems to be lost or that which seems to be stopping us from destiny? I'm going to say, number one, we need to acknowledge God afresh. To acknowledge God all over again, afresh. I know you know him already. But to enter into deeper levels of a relationship with him, because that's what he wants. Where Joshua wakes up in the text that I read to you, Joshua woke up and he sees this vision of a soldier standing with a drawn sword in his hand. I mean, he must have been pretty menacing. He would drawn sword in his hand and Joshua sees him and he does the right thing. He asks him, are you for us or for our adversaries? I mean, which side are you on? I, I, I tell the story often of when our sons were real young, four or five years or something like that. You know, we're in the car on the motorway, M25, driving on a good sunny day. And in a moment, suddenly I saw this row of tanks, a war like artillery, all that, and soldiers. And it was just an impressive sight. And I woke the boys up and I said, look, I'm going to rev them up. We shout, they're going to war. And we made all these jokes in the car, you know. It was all good. And then the thought just dawned on me, wait a minute. Are they our tanks? Or are they the enemy? Because it would be terrible to be being invaded and you're plotting the whole time, uh, cheering on your invaders. Joshua sees this soldier and he does exactly what I would have done, I think. He just goes to him and says, are you on our side or are you on their side? Because it would be good to know. To which the soldier says, uh, no. But that answer doesn't go with the question. I mean, are you here or here? You've got to choose. He says, no. In other words, I haven't come to choose sides. I'm on God's side. I'm on God. And Joshua bows down and he worships the exact right posture to take. And every commentary will tell you that this he is seeing a pre-incarnate vision of none other than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So get your faith back. To, rev, to stir up your faith, we have to just see God afresh and see him for who he is and honor him and go back and say to him that you are my father who lives and dwells in heaven and who has come to earth in the person of Jesus. May your name be forever honored and praised and bowed down. It's a call to worship and recognition of who this good, great God is. That's why I love the words of Spurgeon when he says, you know, could he save your soul from hell and not help you about your simple daily difficulties? He says this, stop raking the earth looking for another savior. Stop looking abroad for another savior. He is sufficient for thee. Good words. He is sufficient for thee. How do we get our faith back? Well, first of all, that's what we do. We acknowledge God. Secondly, we walk by faith. We walk by faith. When you read the rest of the chapter, Joshua goes to the people and obeys God scrupulously to the nth degree. He said, we're going to wake up every morning. We're going to walk around Jericho. We're going to do exactly as God said. Except one thing he said, you shall not speak when we do it. I, I, I've been a, little, a leader a little while. I know why he said that. I think he said it because, because people will talk themselves into a negative state of mind and their faith will be diminished and punctured. By their, by, their, just by their negativity. That's just the truth. It's why you've got to be careful. This year, you cannot let certain faith killers dominate your life. 
you have to let them be gone because they have a way of undermining you more than you realize. I'll give you four of them. The first one is negativity. The disposition to project to the worst case scenario. To the worst case scenario. I know people like that. No matter what anything going on, they're going to, they're going to oh, oh it, it won't work. It won't work. It won't go well. We're all going to die. We're all going to, it's just negative. It's just they have become calibrated that way. That kills faith. Or criticism. The disposition to be preoccupied with the incomplete or with the imperfect. You know those kinds of people that no matter how good everything else is, they only see one bit that is not going so well, and that's the bit they focus on. It's incomplete or it's imperfect. Well, that develops a critical spirit, and a critical spirit will damage your faith. Or skepticism, the disposition that is determined to always question, but it never commits to anything. How to build on that, how to build with that. Or cynicism. This seems like a national gift. Cynicism. The disposition to see every human effort as selfishly motivated. Where the whole time you're thinking, hmm, I wonder what's behind that. Well, sometimes nothing is behind it. When we begin to think of each other in the camp, in the house of God like that, or, or it's just the way of our lives, it kills faith. It kills faith. No wonder Joshua said, Joshua chapter 6, verse 10, where he says to them, not a shout, not a word, until I say so. Beware faith killers. In other words, how are you going to do life this year? You're not going to do it just waltzing into another year. You're not going to do it full of just complaints. You're going to put prayer in your mouth instead of complaints. You're going to trust in the God of heaven. You're going to stir up your faith again. You're going to remember the God who called you. And you're going to remember the effervescence of your faith when you first came to him. How life seemed to be in technicolor and everything was vibrant. And you trusted like never before. What happened since then? Life happened. Pandemic happened. But God is still God. And he's the one that is saying to you, I expect you to still have faith. Because he hasn't changed. God can be trusted. We need to acknowledge God afresh. We need to walk by faith again. And then thirdly, we need to obey the last command. What was the last thing God told you to do in your life? What was the last? Did you obey? Or, is this, or, or do you intend to? Procrastination is killing more Christians' faith than they imagine. No, this is the day to say, you know what? <laughs> Faith requires action. And so we need to get up and go. A friend of mine who's a physiotherapist tells a story of going to a patient who had gone through surgery, come out of surgery, had been recuperated nicely, and now needed to be mobilized. And, the, and my friend goes to him you know, and says, okay, hello, Mr. So-and-so, seen your notes, everything is good. We just need to get you up and get you walking. Because he seemed to just want to stay in the bed. And he was like, you want me to walk? How dare you? I had a big operation. It was this big, you know. I, they thought I would die and all this. My friend is like, really? You're good to go to begin to walk. You need to take a step. He's like, no, not taking a step. I want a second opinion. Second opinion. Well, he gets a second opinion. The second opinion basically says to him, you know what? Yeah, if you don't want to walk, don't walk. Basically, is the way she came across. If you don't want to, don't. Sooner or later, he realized... I do want to walk. But fear 
was handicapping and crippling him from taking steps. This is not the day for anyone to be so fearful that we're chagrined to a spot and won't move on with a moving God. God is calling you and I to take steps to have acts of faith. And that's what Joshua did. That these people had walked around once a day for seven days. It looks like nothing is happening. Then on the seventh day, they walk around seven times and still it looks like nothing is happening. Not one brick is shaken loose the whole time from the wall. And then he says, now shout. You have to obey the whole command. Now shout. And Bible tells us when they shouted, we're told, and the walls of Jericho came down. The walls of Jericho came down. My prayer is this, that as we enter into, as it were, this new year, with all that went on the previous year, that we will enter into it with faith, knowing that the goodness of our God is true. It's true. We don't just tout it or just sing it. We see it in the scriptures, hence we believe it. Now you're going to enter this year by God's grace showing forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, that your life be decorated by the goodness of God, that you may be a living witness, that you may have a testimony and a story, that you may be a powerful evangelist, and as a church, you be an evangel in your city. Because like I said before, now more than ever, every church, no church can be asleep. Every church needs to be awake in their spirit, standing as one man, and then reaching out to the place where God has placed them. Now if you and I will do this, we will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. For we have been called to be watchmen to this land. When we do it together, the glory of God will come. For this nation needs another day. And it needs it in God. Your life needs another day and it needs it in God. My prayer is that God will meet us all at the end of this year that we'll all come back and give him glory and celebrate his faithfulness. It's been great being with you. I hope you've been blessed. Blessings. <music>